It is Friday, and we are working for Crusoe. Sam Park and John Ramey with you Friday, February 16th, 2024. Former Prime Minister Imran Khan cries foul in Pakistan as two rival parties move to form a coalition government following the messy election. The president of Senegal says the election to choose his successor will happen as soon as possible because Senegal's Supreme Court said the delay the incumbent president ordered was unconstitutional. And a former general with a questionable human rights past has apparently been elected the president of Indonesia. Sam Park, uh, election electorama 2024 rolls on. Yes, and- or as they say in Indonesia, a festival of democracy is how they describe their election. You know, that is a beautiful turn of phrase. It's fantastic. Yeah. Good for them. I mean, we'll get to Indonesia. The notion of a country like that having a nationwide election, direct election of a president is just astounding. But yes, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, two elections that we covered last week or an election delayed in the case of Senegal. And then the um, the aftermath of the Pakistan election. So let's jump to Pakistan, where you had the PPP, the PMLN, and the PTI, the three major parties competing. But of course, the PTI had been outlawed. Uh, the leader of that party and former Prime Minister Imran Khan imprisoned. So the candidates who would have been repping the PTI were actually independent candidates. And it turns out they won 93 seats, the biggest plurality or the largest the most seats of any of the parties but it looks like the other parties the ppp and the pmln are going to freeze them out because they're forming a coalition government yes and they had previously that is previous to the era of the pti uh the pakistan people's party and the pakistan muslim league nawaz uh were bitter rivals Uh, they were sort of the democrats and republicans of pakistan now Pakistan has actually many parties, but they were the two main ones, and they contested vigorously for power over the years until Imran Khan came along with the PTI. And so now it'll be interesting to see how a coalition government between the PPP and the PMLN actually functions. Uh, I think that's an open question we're going to have to see. And Pakistan at this moment faces many challenges. Their economy is doing terribly. Uh, They've still not recovered from the floods of two summers ago, really just catastrophic flooding uh, caused in no small part by climate change. And so these are just a couple of the, they face ongoing security concerns uh, in restive and uh, separatist regions. And so uh, Pakistan is not an easy country to govern in the best of times let alone with uh, uh, an unprecedented coalition government. It'll be interesting to see how this works out. But so far, it seems as though uh, there have definitely been some protests on behalf of uh, PTI supporters, but uh, it doesn't. It does seem that uh, that the Pakistani population in general is going to accept this outcome. It might be a little too early to say that definitively, but so far, that seems to be how things are shaping up. The head of the Pakistan Muslim League, uh, Nawaz Sharif, the head of the PML. Uh, so he has nominated his brother to be the prime minister. Um, and then the the secondary part of the coalition, the PPP, 
with the son of Benazir Bhutto, uh, Bilawal Bhutto Zardari. Uh, I heard a report that he is possibly going to be given the presidency. Yes, that's my understanding as well. Right. I don't. I mean, I do not believe that the coalition talks are finalized. Mm -hmm. But as soon as word came down that they were in coalition talks, I think a lot of people figured, okay, that's over. That especially because they probably figured that this was the outcome favored by the Pakistani military, uh, right. which is understood to pull a lot of the strings behind the scenes in Pakistani politics on a routine basis. So the PTI Imran Khan's party outlawed officially, like not allowed to stand for the election. So there were a ton of independent candidates that were thought to be unofficially PTI candidates that win 93 seats. The current leader of the PTI, uh, Gohar Ali Khan, suggested there was evidence without actually revealing it uh, that the PTI won at least 180 seats out of the 266 uh, that were contested in the election. That's only his assertion. I've seen no other reporting that would suggest such a widespread victory by the PTI that's being annulled um, by the other two parties. But it is very clear that the PTI had a much more robust showing in the election than I think was anticipated, at least uh, conventional wisdom. I think that's absolutely right. And that there's still a chance, I would say, that the PTI will take some of these cases to court, much as happened in uh, our election in uh, 2020, although it won't be the incumbent president uh, doing it. But I think another factor that uh, PTI supporters would mention is that they were viciously suppressed by the government. As you say, their party was essentially outlawed. Their leader was imprisoned and convicted on the eve of the collect of the election thousands of pti members were arrested uh and so their contention would be can you imagine how well we would have done without right. the suppression we would have easily won a majority and i think that's probably true uh but again people in pakistan they certainly don't like it but they're used to having things sort of stitched up in advance. For instance, Shabazz Sharif, whom you mentioned, who is going to be, he's the brother of the uh, PMLN uh, uh, leader, Nawaz Sharif. Nawaz used to be the prime minister and, in fact, has been prime minister three times before. Shabazz Sharif has been the interim prime minister. Right, he was the caretaker. That's prime right. Minister. And yeah. so he's he's actually the incumbent prime minister. So he'll just go on being prime minister as long as these coalition talks hold up. I find it actually refreshing. I just assumed that Nawaz Sharif would assume the prime ministership, but he's decided to let his brother have it, which I think might have been sort of astute, actually, right? Because everybody's just sick of, you know, the, the sort of revolving door of Pakistani politics. Shabazz honestly isn't much of a, of a relief in that respect, but at least it's not Nawaz Sharif who's been... Uh, prime minister over and over again. Nawaz also, we could have forgiven him if he was a little gun shy because he's never finished a, a sure. premier term uh, during his time. In fact, once was overthrown in a military coup. So you could maybe understand why he wouldn't want to actually sit in the chair. Uh, the head of the PPP, uh, Bilawal uh, Bhutto Zardari, the son of Benazir Bhutto and the grandson of a former prime, uh, president, of uh, Pakistan was questioned one time about nepotism and dynastic politics in Pakistan. And this was actually in an interview with CNN before the election. And uh, 
we have talked about how it is kind of nepotistic uh, to the extreme in um, several uh, Asian democracies. Yeah. And uh, Bill Wall's answer was, I didn't choose this life. It chose me. And I meant to mention that last week. And I thought now was a good time to since Sharif is choosing his brother to be or to remain, as you say, the prime minister. Um, yeah, and, and the the funny part is that it's tantamount to saying I was born into this family, right? right. <laughs> you know, I didn't I had no control over who my parents are. What am I supposed to do? No, mom and dad, I want to be a doctor. You know, uh, and on a certain level, I, I think that's absolutely right. But it doesn't sort of assuage our concerns about the state of politics in many different countries. And in fact, uh, many people would say that Imran Khan himself. Uh, would have liked to establish su- that such a dynasty sure. for his own family, but he just didn't have time. Right. It is interesting, right? If you are, if you're seeking the best kind of spin on the con phenomenon within Pakistani politics, it's the popular athlete busts up the duopoly that was really just the uh, two-faced stooge of the military. But in fact, as you say, Khan probably wanted to set up his own quasi family monopoly and power i don't know Maybe. About pro- it's possible anyway yeah. yeah well again it, we'll it mi- wouldn't shock anybody if that had been the case no and in fact it's possible that the military can just keep Khan in their back pocket right uh they can let him out of prison just as easily as they got him in in fact probably easier than, than- he's serving a 14-year sentence yes and so you know if any either the pmln or the ppp acts up Right. They could just pull Khan back out and say, oh, look, he's back out. Right. Uh, I kind of doubt that that that'll happen, but I don't think it's a possibility that hasn't occurred to anybody in Pakistan. Is it the case that the Pakistani military just uses the facade of democracy, elections, parties and candidates as kind of the bright, shiny object to distract the populace from Who's actually running the government? I think that, that might be. Is that too cynical? I think that might be a little bit of an overstatement. I don't think it's a great overstatement. However, I mean it's rather well understood that it is the military that calls the shots politically in Pakistan, up to and including outright military coups, which have happened. Right, but they seem to they seem to try to keep their powder dry on those. They don't they don't like to be frivolous about when that happens. No, it has been a good twenty years and more. Shall we move on to Senegal? Why not? On Thursday, so yesterday, uh, Senegal's Constitutional Council rejected the incumbent president, Maki Sall's unilateral order to delay the uh, presidential election. Well, Maki Sall says that was an act of the National Assembly. Well, okay. No one really believes that, but we should at least give him a fair hearing on this. I have read that it has generally been regarded as a decree. And then there was a controversial bill after his order that confirmed it. Right? I think that's that's that, that's a, the, a very fair way of putting I it. I don't want to put the cart before the horse, but yeah, okay. So anyway, it, the, the Supreme Court in Senegal said that's unconstitutional. And remember, we talked about this last week. Saul had made the order. The bill was being confirmed in the parliament and... Uh, like riots broke out yes. and people got arrested. So all hell was breaking loose. So now the Constitutional Council, the Supreme Court of Senegal has said the presidential order is unconstitutional and it voided the bill that Parliament passed that was confirming 
uh, Saul's decree. He wanted to move the election from February 25th to December 15th. So now the uh, Supreme Court says, your term is up on April 2nd, President Saul. So you have to leave office by April 2nd. There's been no date established for when the actual election will take place. Um, but it's going to happen soon, apparently. That's and and I think it's notable, for instance, that that the Constitutional Council really threaded this very carefully, right? They didn't say, no, you can't postpone the election, right? Uh, because Saul had all these excuses. Oh, well, there's concerns about eligibility and things like this for different candidates. Uh, they said, okay, you have to be gone by April 2nd. So if you postpone the election, there needs to be an elected president before then. You can't postpone it till December, which was what Maki Saul first intended to do. And that just seemed like an inordinately long time to have to do this. But the court, I think, very uh, wisely and, of course, correctly said, look, your term is up. You don't get to just sort of be the caretaker president, which I think was sort of what Maki Saul was envisioning, right, that he would be kind of the the caretaker uh, between uh, April and December. And again, many people thought that he was just trying to finagle a way to remain in the presidency because it was not the first time that he seemed to be trying to do just that. Yeah, Saul, the current president of Senegal, has been in power since 2012. And last week we talked about it. His hand-picked successor, who I believe is the current prime minister, is underwater politically, like not very popular. So yes. he was kind of stalling for time to maybe revive his uh, preferred successor's uh, political reputation. And then also um, big-time challengers' opposition had not been yet declared eligible uh, That's right. to run. So. There were some legitimate reasons, as you say, that that there may have been a need for a delay. And, you know, Senegal never has suffered a military coup. They're the only West African nation to say that right They're regarded as one of the more stable democracies, especially in West Africa. And the former prime minister of Senegal, who's the opposition leader, Aminata Touré, praised the judicial independence uh, of the Supreme Court making this ruling. And he said, quote, it was a great day democracy the ruling coming yesterday on thursday you know independent judicial branch making independent judicial decisions that's good you want that in the mix right absolutely that's a, fun that's a functioning democracy yes and not to mention the the uh, the street protests which were suppressed right in fact the united states was alone amongst western nation and says look you not not only do you have to have adhere to the Constitution and your election schedule, you have to allow people to protest on the street in a, if you want to call yourself a functioning democracy. And I think that figures in very highly here, because as you say, Senegal is the only West African nation to have never experienced a, a post-independence military coup. And they know that. They like that. They're proud of that. And by the way, they don't have to look very far in their region to see nations that where that condition does not pertain. Uh, and so they don't want to just fall victim to the same terrible things that happen to democracies in other parts of their region. They're proud of what they've achieved, and they're anxious to hang on to it. And I think Macky Sall 
kind of misjudged the situation. I think he, he himself had noticed that there were a lot of coups in his region, especially recently, and thought, and I think we've discussed this last week, that if he could just do this politically instead of militarily, then it might fly. It, yeah, it would be more palatable than some of the other sort of coups that had taken place in his region last year, for example, and in, in, in recent years generally. Uh, and so uh, we should be happy that these uh, sort of standard democratic procedures uh, have been able to hold up in a country where democracy itself is uh, very much under threat, as it is in many places, I should say. I don't mean to... to isolate that particular region we certainly are having our own problems with i was just gonna say we're in a glass house over here sam uh ecowas france and the european union remember our buddies at ecowas vaguely yeah yeah, economic uh council of west african uh states yes states yeah um uh among those uh urging uh president Saul to comply with the uh supreme court decision i just was excited i was excited to see ecowas again well, I mean, that makes one of us, you know, I mean, uh, uh, ECOWAS has not been doing very well, especially since they threatened military action against the coup leaders in Niger last year, and then didn't did, do anything. Yeah, didn't pull the trigger, if you'll pardon the expression. I'll, uh, I'll allow it. You know, thing, but, you know, things, in fact, uh, we didn't have a chance to discuss this yes, but, yet, but Niger and uh, Burkina Faso and Mali have both launched proceedings to quit ECOWAS. Uh, and so things are not going very well for them right now. And I think this result in uh, Senegal is a great relief to them, right? right. Because somebody can stay normal, please. Yeah, right. And, right. They, and they, and, and you know, the sort of ineffectuality of, of the ECOWAS block won't be on display again, uh, or at least as regards Senegal. We, we hope. Anyway, this situation, again, we don't know when the elections are going to take place. Perhaps Maki Sal has some other cards up his sleeve that he'll try to play. I kind of doubt it, but it's certainly possible. Any other thoughts on Senegal or can we move to Indonesia? I think we can move to Indonesia. I would say, though, that uh, the theme of today's show essentially is that the status quo in each case pretty much holds up. It's a little different uh, in each case. But again, the military kind of fixes up the election in Pakistan. That's basically what always happens. It's a little different because you have a coalition government. But on the whole, it's pretty much how things always go, right? Uh, Democratic uh, uh, institutions hold up in Senegal. That's basically how things always go in Senegal. It's a little different this time because Macky Sall tried to hold, tried to postpone the election, and so far has failed. What it looks like, the way things usually go in Senegal is the way they're going to go this time, and that is going to be the same thing that we're going to discuss uh, right now as regards Indonesia. Okay, unofficial results indicating Prabowo Subianto winning nearly sixty percent of the presidential vote in Indonesia. That is enough to avoid a runoff. About 85% of the votes are counted, according to um, state-owned news organization Antara, also CNN affiliate reporters and uh, Reuters. So they actually don't announce the official results until March, but right now it looks like Subianto, a 72-year-old former general, will become president 
of Indonesia. There is an election every five years, a direct election for president every five years in Indonesia. Before we get into the the nuts and bolts of this particular election, just a quick reminder about Indonesia. 279 million people. It's the fourth most populous country. It is the most populous Muslim majority country. Its GDP is 16th largest in the world. And it is, um, what is the formation here? Uh, archipelagic, right? Yes. It is multiple islands. like Thousands 17, of islands. Actually. 17 or 18,000 islands, yeah. right? Depending o- Only 13,000 yeah. of which are inhabited. Oh, I saw only 6,000. So either way, yes. it's a big, big gap, right? Yes, and, it encompasses three time zones. Right. Uh, so imagine if the United States was an archipelago. It just, sure. Yeah. yeah, like that's it's hard enough to govern the United States with that being a landmass. Over 150 languages spoken across the three time zone breadth of Indonesia. So, you know, that's a gnarly way to conduct or the, the, that's just a gnarly environment in which to conduct an election. There was another number. Oh, here it is. 200 million eligible voters, 800,000 polling stations across the country. So It's quite an achievement. And that's, I think, one staggering. of the reasons they call it a festival of democracy, right. which is really much better than, than the name I came up with of Electorama to describe this whole year of global elections. But I'll let them have it. Festival of democracy, good for them. Uh, so Subianto, the apparent winner, former special forces commander, he led missions against pro-independence groups during Indonesia's, uh, 24-year military occupation of East Timor. He is also alleged to have ordered the kidnapping of pro-democracy activists in the final months of the former authoritarian leader of Indonesia, Suharto. He was Correct. kind of the hatchet man or a hatchet man yes. for Suharto. Who also was, the son-in-law of right. Suharto. Well, at one time, the son-in-law, I think right. that, they, that they've since, be, that he divorced his wife or something like that. But he, And he, Subianto's dad was in the cabinet. I mean, he's a yeah. he comes from a politically elite family. I mean, it's an election. They've elected. They've elected a guy who yes. might have been cracking skulls for a strongman. Uh, you know, and he he's run twice before. He lost in 2014, and he lost in 2019, and there was some unrest after that loss too. Correct. Uh, he now we should say that he is not the first former general to be president of Indonesia. In fact, the uh, predecessor of the incumbent president, uh, whose name was. Uh, uh, Yudhoyono uh, was also a former general. So this Listen, is Eisenhower is a former general. Like you can exactly. be a totally fine president and be a former general. That's right. And uh, in fact, Yudhoyono was a totally fine president. Uh, and uh, but Prabowo run ran twice unsuccessfully against the incumbent president Joko Widodo. And one of the fun things about being on working for Crusoe is that we get to learn along with our listeners. And in fact, I've, I mean, uh, Joko Widodo has been president of Indonesia for 10 years and I've read news stories about him that entire time. In fact, even beforehand when he was, when he was a candidate, uh, but 
Until this week, I'd never heard anybody pronounce his name out loud. So I always thought that his cool portmanteau nickname was pronounced Jokowi. Oh, what is it? Jokowi? Actually, it's Jokowi. Interesting. Uh, So, again, we're not experts, but I would have thought I would have heard about this earlier. But that's just one fun thing that I learned. Anyway, Jokowi is the outgoing president. And he's leaving office with an approval rating in the 80 percents, which is just unfathomable. And that's one reason why he beat Prabowo the second time anyway, because he was a very popular incumbent then. Prabowo, after that loss, seemed to have decided, well, look, if you can't beat him, join him. So he kind of mended fences with Jokowi and uh, to the point where, in fact, his running mate in this election is Jokowi's son, mm. uh, whose name is Gibran Rakabooming. Uh, and in fact, somehow it was discovered that Gibran was eligible to vote, even though he was younger than the age of 40, uh, that Which is eligible what to run. Run, right? Because yeah. you've got to be 40 to be uh, president. Yeah, or vice president. But I don't know if, if they decided that law was unconstitutional, or but there was some kind of, you know, we might say shenanigans to allow uh, uh, Jokowi's son to be on the ticket. And so Jokowi never actually explicitly endorsed Prabowo for president, but he kind of didn't have to. Does he need to? Yeah. Right. And so you know, my son is his vice president. So what do you think? But Jokowi is so popular that the only way Prabowo seemed to have figured he could win was just sort of trying to be the continuity candidate. And I think many observers anyway seem to believe that uh, he will be successful as the president of Indonesia to the extent that he just tries to be the sequel of Jokowi. Uh, because Jokowi is easily the most popular president that Indonesia's had since independence. And so uh, why would you want to change that? Uh, and Jokowi- So he's in, in that, he's in that H.W. Bush lane. Yeah, sort of, right? But he might expect a better result than, than right. H.W. got. But uh, for instance, Jokowi uh, is a sort of self-made business figure. Right. He, he started out as a furniture salesman, which sounds kind of weird. Right. But then when you realize that Indonesia is a developing economy, which generally and in this case does mean that it's a rapid, rapidly urbanizing economy, or at least was when Jokowi became president. Right. So you've got a lot of people moving into cities. These people all need furniture. Right. And they there's a lot of people who need a lot of furniture very quickly. Uh, and so that's in many ways, the secret of Jokowi's success. And if you're making furniture, and I don't know if he actually made it, but he was he had suppliers that he had to you know, obviously uh, have close contact with. His suppliers need a lot of timber. They need a lot of metal and other things that you meet that you make furniture out of. And that's what uh, Indonesia produces in great quantities is just raw commodities, uh, timber, metal, palm oil, and things like this. So being a furniture salesman sort of helped Jokowi understand things like supply chains and the very specific supply chains that operate at a very large scale in his own country. And I think this was one of the secrets of his success. He's presided over very steady, very strong economic growth that occurred under his watch, not all of which was actually 
attributable to him. And he just kind of got lucky at that uh, in uh, being elected at the time that he was. But he also instituted a number of policies that were very astute. For instance, uh, last year when we were talking about the elections in Nigeria, uh, we remarked that Nigeria is an enormous oil producer. I'm not sure, though, if we mentioned that Nigeria refines almost no oil. So they export lots of oil and import lots of gasoline. Right. They have to buy it back. Sure. Yeah. And so this is just uh, a bad position to be in. So one of the things that Jokowi did was, for instance, uh, Indonesia, is, I believe, the world's largest producer of nickel, which is in high demand right now and will continue to be in high demand because it's a key component in uh, battery manufacture. And so what Jokowi did was to say, okay, international mining companies, you can dig up all the nickel you want, or that is, you know, for the contracts you have, uh, but you can't export raw nickel. You have to refine you it refine here. You got to refine it here. Uh, and this was, you know, really- uh, Forward thinking. Yeah, very forward thinking resource management that I think a lot of other development uh uh, developing countries would do well to emulate. Jokowi also aims to uh, build a domestic electric vehicle uh, industry in Indonesia because we're refining the the nickel for the batteries right here. We might as you know you, you might as well get it all in one place. Uh, and the crowning achievement of his presidency will be the construction of the brand new capital city on the island of Borneo uh, called uh, Nusantara. And so they will move the political capital of the country from Jakarta to Nusantara, which is this brand new city that they're building, one of many enormous uh, infrastructure projects that have taken place under uh, Jokowi's reign. So it's not just that uh, he inherited a good economic circumstance, but he's been able to build on it and and very sort of shrewdly say, okay, how can we keep this ball rolling? And so Prabowo, as he assumes the presidency, will want to kind of keep this sort of thing going if he knows what it what's good for him. Uh, and we just have to hope that uh, Jokowi's son isn't just a guy, you know, that Prabowo doesn't end up just being sort of a placeholder, right? right. Uh, we'll have to see how this all works out. At the same time, if he is just a placeholder, that's better than if he is like a military strongman or yes, a former that's right. military strongman. Yes, I mean, it is yeah. interesting, right? I mean, he apparently did some rather unsavory things when he was, uh, as I said, a hatchet man for Suharto, who was the authoritarian in power for many years in Indonesia. But if because he's got to stay in this lane, this continuity candidate lane with uh, Jokowi's son on the ticket in the yeah, cabinet breathing down like, his neck possibly i mean right? that's actually kind of a pretty good check on anything nefarious he might cook up and i'm not yes. trying to say that Braboa is inherently evil or whatever but you know the resume is the resume yes but the 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 problem though is that uh jacoby also seems to be trying to develop a family dynasty right uh, which is the yeah. sort of uh that what links him with pakistan and again many other asian countries uh but Indonesia, uh, as we've discussed, just sort of geographically and demographically, they're kind of they kind of do their own thing. For example, they don't actually have a shoreline on the South China Sea. They're right there, 
but they don't actually have territorial waters, uh, unlike most of their neighbors, right? Uh, they're we'll kind throw of, in the map right now, right yeah. there. Yeah, there. <laughs> as you can see, they're kind of shut off from the South China Sea by Malaysia, with whom they share the island of Borneo along with the Sultanate of Brunei. And so, uh, and again, they extend very far to the east uh, to another large island uh, of New Guinea, which they share with Papua New Guinea. So they go from uh, almost as far uh, west as the Indian subcontinent uh, all the way past or almost past the uh the uh, the eastern border of Australia. Uh, this is one of the reasons why they've never had, uh, that is since the dictatorship of Suharto, they've never had a strong centralized government just because the- Well, it's hard to get places. That's right, exactly, right? And, you know, different islands have their own sort of uh, island identities as we've discussed in previous episode about, about Taiwan, right? Uh, and in this case, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of islands uh, many of which uh, have historically been not very well connected to one another and some of which still are not. I mean, it's a bit like 19th century uh, Western United States, right? It's with, but across seas, right? Yes. It's, yeah. or, or maybe the Greek Isles or something. I mean, it's just, yeah, the, the physical realities of Indonesia, of course, would make it very challenging to have a strong central government. Yeah, unless you're a brutal dictator. Right, right. Uh, right. Any other thoughts about Indonesia? I mean, just considering the scope of, as you said, the festival of democracy and, and the lineage of the candidate, the winning, the apparent winning candidate um, seem to be the most kind of uh, interesting elements of that story to me. I would agree. And again, this is basically what always happens in Indonesia. They have a, a, an election that really is free and fair. Right. Prabowo didn't cheat at all. There's no indication of right. any there, kind yeah, of... no outcry from watchdog groups or anything. That's right. This. Everybody yeah. agrees that this was a fair election. And so Prabowo will, will, Prabowo will uh, take office as the president. And so uh, uh, in this time of challenged democracies, uh, none of these countries actually managed to backslide. Uh, the, the thing with Again, this is it's a little different because of the vice presidential candidate being Jokowi's son, right? But you know, uh, uh, as backsliding goes, I think that's tolerable. It's not optimum, but uh, I think we can probably put up with that. So in twenty twenty four, we'll take all the wins we can get. Absolutely right, even you know, as provisional as they might be. But uh, uh, that's basically the theme of today's show: is the status quo holds. Next week, we'll talk about uh, Nalvani, the opposition leader in Russia, who... Yes, and next Friday... Died course, today. Yes, next Friday, of course, will be the eve of two years of, of Russians, Russians' aggression in Ukraine. Right. So we haven't talked about Ukraine uh, much at all uh, since the war in Gaza broke out. Many things have happened there. Uh, and we're, so we're probably going to want to spend a fair amount of time talking about that. And we can, since it relates to Russia, obviously, uh, we can talk about the death of Alexei Navalny as well. And as a matter of fact, uh, I don't think it's entirely coincidental that Navalny's, the news of Navalny's death broke on the opening day of the Munich Security Conference, which is going on right now uh, and will be happening through the weekend. In fact, Navalny's apparent widow uh, addressed the C yes the Munich Security Conference on its opening day talking about the reported death of her husband which is still not confirmed by any independent source 
by the way. It's only the Kremlin's word that we have for this. I think it's probably true. I can't imagine why they would make something like that up. It would be quite embarrassing for them if he later turned out to be alive. Uh, but so I think the bulk of next week's episode will be devoted to matters such as these, unless very important news breaks in the interim, which is certainly very possible. Also of note, uh, the Russian government getting the opposition leader out of the way, even though he was in prison, but now he's dead uh, a month before their election. Yes. Air quotes, that's election. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, right. Um, emails, suggestions, comments. Uh, you can reach us at Media at gmail.com. He is Sam Park. I'm John Ramey. This has been Working for Crusoe. Have yourselves a great weekend. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.